Welcome to the Intellinair Podcast, a show about the intersection of technology and agriculture. I'm your host, Jack Heald. This is one in a series of interviews we've titled Thought Leaders in Agriculture. We sit down and talk with some of the most respected thinkers, inventors, and investors in the world of agriculture to find out what's new, what's exciting, and what to watch out for. Today, a conversation with Rob Syke, the founder and president of Agritrend, and one of the most interesting and perhaps controversial thinkers in the world of agriculture. I'm here today with Robert Syke, the uh, founder and president of Agritrend. Rob, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, my background is uh, really around uh, plant physiology, soil chemistry, crop nutrition. I've always had a fascination with agriculture. Uh, built uh, Agritrend, Agridata, which is a data company, and Agritrend Aggregation, which is a carbon credit trading company, and sold them all to Trimble in uh, in uh, late 2015, early 16. So uh, the Agritrend group, and uh, while I'm the founder, I'm no longer president. Uh, I'm involved in global business development with uh, with Trimble, and uh, I've got my uh, irons in many fires. I have a farming operation that I'm participating in in Uganda, uh, raised some cattle in Saskatchewan, um, uh, have written a book called The Agriculture Manifesto, um, writing another book called Food 5.0, um, working on um, a video series uh, talking about genetic engineering and the benefits of GMOs in agriculture and for society, have a TEDx talk called uh, Will Agriculture Be Allowed to Feed 9 Billion People? Um, so uh, very much involved in agriculture, agricultural entrepreneurialism, agriculture technology, agriculture systems integration. Um, so that's kind of what uh, what I am passionate about, Jack. Very good. Well, you're uh, sounds like you are the perfect person for us to to talk to. Um, my first question I want to ask you is: Imagine that you are giving a, like a State of the Union speech for agriculture. What are the main points you would make? Okay, the main points I would make is regardless of what religion you believe in, whether you're a vegan or a paleo or organic or GMO or non-GMO or whatever denomination you come from, the the one thing we all agree on is that agriculture must be sustainable, uh, must be sustainable in, in the long term and really must be infinitely sustainable. Otherwise, the human race doesn't exist. Uh, the um, Agriculture must uh, be able to adopt and utilize uh, new sciences and technologies as they emerge. And we have to remember how fragile we are. I mean, the, the, whole, the whole human race lives off a thin skin of about six inches of topsoil uh, that feed um, all of the plants and animals on, on the planet. So um, I think that, you know, uh, one of the things that... Uh, has happened as society has evolved and people get more and more urban in nature, fewer and fewer people are on the land actually growing the crops as there's a divorce uh, of understanding between uh, what agriculture currently is and what people's perception or thoughts about agriculture is. And perception is not reality. Uh, Farmers are very sophisticated, running multiple computers, data sets, 
uh, doing amazing things with technology integration. And, uh, and I think the, uh, the image of agriculture by and large with a lot of urban consumers is still one of round fendered pickup trucks and bib overalls and a straw hanging out of the mouth and, and a red barn. And that's just not agriculture today. So, so that's, that's where I'm at. I, I think the major concern I have today is, uh, is the divorce between uh, what agriculture is and what the urban people think it is. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, in many ways, I think agriculture is a screaming success story. Uh, lowest incidence of uh, global poverty ever, uh, less than 800 million people are uh, living at the extreme poverty level, which is still a huge number, but a screaming success for agriculture. Our ability to feed the planet, uh, more people die of obesity than they do of starvation. Uh, we've got problems in that area. Um, but, but by and large, uh, you know, agriculture continues to evolve and continues to grab new technology to move forward. And um, I think that uh, our ability to feed the planet is certainly there. Uh, people would argue against uh, uh, that statement, but I would challenge them with the fact that if we implement the science and the technologies at our disposal, that we, in fact, can vastly um, increase the quality of agricultural output and decrease our environmental footprint. So I want to follow up on, on the disconnect that you're talking about, um, the disconnect between the perception of the urban consumer and the reality of the agricultural producer. Um, why is that disconnect so important? In because, uh, mind, yeah. Yeah, go well, ahead. Well, the, the, the disconnect is important because um, every man and woman has a vote. Um, and so as you get concentrations of population in urban centers, they understand less and less about what's happening in agriculture. This does not prevent activist groups from leveraging social media to the point where they create absolute hysteria around things that are non-issues, uh, using fear as a platform to generate membership sales and to propagate um, panic in, in, in urban uh, consumers um, that, ultimately leads to really poor policy implemented by politicians, which ultimately strips tools out of, out of farmers' hands. And so you have, uh, you have a, a population, an urban population, that essentially has a vote, and that vote can strip the, the tools and the technology away from, um, from agriculture's hands. And I, I don't have to go very far to give you examples such as GMO, which uh, is a breeding technique and CRISPR technology, which is coming up and um, is even more and more precise than traditional breeding techniques. Those things uh, the average consumer has no understanding about and yet uh, has been uh, kind of conditioned to think that GMO is somehow bad, and it's not. The more science you understand, the more you understand the science of genetic engineering, you would regard it as a remarkable um, advancement of the breeding process, and yet uh, that's not what the average consumer is being led to believe. I've, I've a couple of follow-up questions there. Number one, would you comment about this recent decision out of the EU um, that limited 
as I understand it, uh, limited the CRISPR t- use of CRISPR technology. And I'm, my understanding may be inaccurate, but but would you call? No, your understand now? your understanding is correct. The the, the decision is absurd. Uh, there's no other way to call it that. It's absurd. It's an ill-formed, ill-conceived decision uh, that basically drives and, and grounds uh, European agriculture in 2001 technology. Um, the uh, if you read if I've read the ruling, uh, the ruling uh, basically said that CRISPR technology uh, is deemed the same as uh, GMO technology. So they have equated um, the uh, um, the the precise uh, the precise editing of genes in a in an organism uh, they've they've equated that to transgenic, which is moving genes back and forth between organisms. And paradoxically, uh, if you expose seeds to mutagenesis, which is chemo or nuclear mutation, <laughs> that's okay. But only if you've mutated the crops before two thousand and one, old mutagenesis or old mutation. But if you mutate crops using those methods today, that's new mutagenesis. So what they basically said is the random scrambling of chromosomes underneath the archaic science that we had in 2001 is perfectly fine. But when you go in specifically wanting to edit one or two genes to prevent a disease or a fungus or fight some sort of a, of a pest problem, uh, that's de- deemed as a, as a genetic interference. And so it falls underneath the precautionary principle, which basically says if you, you have to prove uh, things are safe for the environment and for human beings, and in science, you can't prove a double negative. So the precautionary principle uh, basically uh, will stymie all development of breeding in uh, the European Union. So all of those scientists working on CRISPR technology, uh, gene editing, genetic uh, engineering will be leaving the EU because there's no incentive for working on that technology in a jurisdiction where you can't commercialize it. What are the effects? Um, what, what are the effects on the market as a result of this EU decision? How can folks, uh, and I, you know, I, <laughs> Hey, we all got to make a living. Yeah. Well, outside of the EU take advantage of this situation or what are the natural advantages that are going to accrue because of this situation? We, there is no advantage to the EU. Uh, this, no, I mean, for those outside the EU. What's okay, the so, so the, I mean, you got to remember that this whole initiative was driven by, by some, uh, some zealots, uh, some French uh, organic uh, activist groups that uh, took the decision to the European Court of Justice. And so it's just a fringe group. So it, it really hurts all of the European farming community. But there are some opportunities. I mean, right now, uh, as we speak, Germany is suffering a drought right now. So if you had access to science, you'd be able to breed crops that are more drought tolerant. And indeed, that's one of the examples. I think there are many shining examples I can give you. But um, in Canada, where I'm I'm speaking to you from Canada, we don't uh, register crops according to breeding technique. We register crops according to novel trait. So whether that crop was derived through mutagenesis or cisgenics or transgenics or CRISPR technology or gene editing, each one of those crops that comes to market is assessed on its novel trait, which I think is a very level-headed way of of bringing crops to marketplace. The, The USDA has already determined that CRISPR technology is not the same as uh, transgenics. 
so it's going to give us uh, in North America and in places around the world that adopt this new technology a leg up. Um, it's, it's relegating the EU to become the Museum of Agriculture on the planet, which is unfortunate for them. Um, but it'll create opportunities for those uh, jurisdictions around the world that can adopt the new technology. My fear about the European Union ruling on CRISPR is it will also uh, condemn many uh, African nations to, uh, to uh, perpetual darkness in terms of agricultural science because a lot of agri- uh, African nations take their lead from EU policy. What what opportunities are going to open up for other technologies in the EU? Because uh, and 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 what I'm thinking is is because we've got crops that that don't have the opportunity to be genetically modified to be resistant to pests um, or, or or various uh, organic um, disease processes. It would seem that folks who who create technologies to help get early warning for those kinds of things, we'll have a, a, a bigger opportunity. That's a great statement. I mean, any time, if you were in the EU right now and you're, and you're looking at your options for herbicide control, one of the options would be tillage, which is not good for the soil and not good for greenhouse gas balance. However, in the, in, in the face that you can't use herbicide-tolerant crops because GMOs aren't allowed, then the utilization of, uh, of, uh, of, of specific cultivation or early detection of weed outbreaks where you can spray out a certain portion of the crop with a specific herbicide at that location uh, are going to be very important. And I would argue important uh, everywhere in the world. I mean, there's not a farmer yet that I have met in my 35 years in my career not once have I ever seen a farmer put up his hand and say, I want to spend more money on fertilizer or more money on crop protection next year. They want to spend less. So if there's ways for them to uh, document uh, where uh, they have specific problems in the fields, and then with technology around uh, GIS and GPS technology tied to variable rate application or site-specific application, we'd be able to target the problem um, right in the field, provided we know where it is in the field. Talk about some of the technologies that are the most promising in the near future. Maybe not uh, widely adopted yet, but but very promising and and can be adopted very in the very near future. I think one of the one of the things that I see the advent of that is interesting is field sensor technology. So whether it's uh, moisture sensors placed in the field, uh, potentially nutrient sensors placed in the field. Uh, leaf, uh, leaf uh, sensors to detect evapotranspiration rates. All of those things are interesting. And then we also uh, need to think about where we need to know where the problems are in the field. So early, early stage detection of problems with, uh, with high resolution imagery is really important. So you think about a drone, for example, and lots of attention with drones, but fairly slow. So the ability to uh, to manage large acreages using drones, I think, is uh, going to be confined to smaller acreage crops that are higher value, but that can provide you high-resolution imagery. Then you have aerial imagery, and then you have microsatellites, and then you have macrosatellites. And as you go higher in the air, of course, the resolution decreases. But if we had timely information 
then that information could be used to, to help inform a farmer or an agronomist where there is a problem in the field. Well, you, you talked a little bit about the obstacles with, uh, with resolution. What other obstacles have to be overcome for these near future technologies to really take hold? Well, resolution really defines the, the granularity or the degree of detail you can see. If you think about a picture that you've seen on the internet and you try to zoom in close to see more detail and that, that picture all of a sudden get, becomes very blurry, that has very poor resolution. Uh, the deeper the resolution, uh, the, the smaller the pixel size, the more detail you can get. So when we're dealing with crops, we need to be able to do a couple of things. We need to have high enough uh, resolution so that we can actually determine what we're looking at. Um, we need to be able to then be alerted as to where uh, in the field issues are cropping up. So we work with many farmers that are 5, 10, 15, 30,000 acres. You, you would have hundreds of fields. And how do you, in a very, very short period of time, uh, scan all of those acres and determine which acres are actually being impacted by a nutrient deficiency, a, a biotic or an abiotic stress. Uh, biotics would be like a disease or an insect outbreak uh, or uh, um, um, an abiotic stress such as a drought uh, or some other compaction issue. How would you, on you know, a 30,000 or 15,000 acre farm, how do you scout that land uh, detailed enough and, and fast enough to provide actions in, in, in real time. And, and that's one of the things that, uh, that uh, I, I think that we're, we're starting to crack. And what are the technologies that are allowing us or are coming that are going to make that possible? I know aerial imaging is making strides, but um, how far away is it? Well, I think it's relatively close. I mean, the the keys uh, the keys to uh, um, the keys to making this technology working for us are are uh, uh, rapid acquisition of data. And so, again, one could think about the deployment of airplanes with cameras on them, so you could get large swaths of land um, frequently um, photographed. Uh, then you'd have to ingest that data. So the computing power is increasing right now, Jack. So we're able to ingest the data quickly because it's terabytes worth of data. Sure. And then, and then, um, and then utilizing technology that would provide for um, uh, artificial intelligence. And there's lots of kinds of artificial intelligence, but one that would, you know, do anomaly detection, change detection, um, show us what the uh, what the um, degree of uh, of uh, completeness of the rows, the seeding rows are, or even weed detection, all of those things uh, can be uh, brought into a machine learning type of algorithm. And uh, ultimately, that can kick out an alert to a farmer saying, hey, of the 100 fields you have, these four fields are are, are have an alert right now. And these four fields have certain parts of the field that should be scouted at immediately. And uh, we'll point you exactly to those areas where you should go walk. Well, that, that sounds brilliant. Um, but, of course, one of the questions that, that I would raise would be, 
even if the, all this can be done technologically, there's still a cost involved. And as you said earlier, there's not a farmer alive who said, oh, hey, I hope to spend a little more money next year on inputs. Right. Um, so what, what kind of costs can farmers expect to see here? And, and, and in terms of an ROI, they're gonna, if they gotta spend more for this kind of technology, can they expect better outputs or can they expect lower costs on other ends? Well, I, I think both. Um, the, the technology such as, uh, IntelliNair's AG MRI, um, I could see that kind of technology being applied in, in several different ways as an agronomist and ultimately as a farmer. I think one of the real good examples that I've been excited about was last year when there was a field of soybeans uh, that was under the ag MRI system and they were doing um, rapid or uh, high frequency flights over the field of soybeans and then running it through the ag MRI um, machine learning algorithm to determine where there was changes or where there might be stresses or where there might be anomalies. And in the field, you can see the headlands. So headlands, it doesn't take a farmer very long to figure out. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's where I turn. That's where I have double overlap. So that's where I have higher degree of compaction. The next one was a ridge, a sandy ridge to the field. And he goes, oh, yeah, well, I know that. That's a sandy ridge. And, of course, the crop is going to be weaker there. But what, why is the crop all weaker in this area of the field? I don't get it. And so that was a tremendous example of being able to utilize ag MRI technology and anomaly detection uh, through machine learning. Uh, basically, the algorithm told you to go to that area of the field. And what it was, Jack, it was actually an iron deficiency, iron chlorosis inside of soybeans picked up uh, with anomaly detection. Now, as an agronomist uh, with 50,000 acres to scout, I need to know, number one, which fields have got issues, which ones are facing changes more rapidly from picture to picture. Secondly, where in the field do I go to? Uh, and ultimately, I think the anomaly uh, detection, the machine learning can start to tell us what those things are. But it's, isn't that a fascinating and a, and a wonderful story because you're able to catch soybeans that were iron deficient with iron chlorosis early in the season, go exactly to the area where there's the problem. And then an agronomist has to, of course, diagnose, um, you know, what the problem is and, and, and why it's there and ultimately how to fix it. But that, that's a, that's a shining example of, you know, and, and then we don't have to spray the whole field with iron. We can spray the area that's suffering from iron chlorosis and that, might be induced by a number of things, uh, such as compaction or uh, likely high pH soils. So um, you've brought it. You brought up IntelliNair, and it, and uh, tell me a little bit more about what it was. It, it, is there more about the IntelliNair solution that piqued your interest and uh, made you want to get involved with them? Well, absolutely. I mean, there's no shortage of ways to get imagery. Uh, there is just no shortage. And you might think that as a farmer, if we had, um, you know, high-frequency satellite imagery or high-frequency aerial imagery uh, ultimately uh, laid on our table, that these pictures, but 
if you're you start you start looking at uh, you, you think the pictures would provide you the insights that you need. Well, they don't because what you're what you're faced with then is a situation of information overload. Uh, it's like all of these images are being puked on the table in front of you, and yeah, you have to sift through these images field by field, figure out which fields are are moving ahead, what parts of fields are falling behind, and it's absolutely a um, um, a horrendous process and one that just results in extreme uh, image fatigue. And so uh, the 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 thing about Intellinair's MRI system, it's not an image company. It's an algorithm. It's a it's a it's a machine learning um, stress and change detection technology that can work on like virtually any imagery that has high enough resolution. So um, to me, it's not about the image. I want to know what I do with the image. How do I put the image to work? And uh, Intellinair and Ag MRI really do that. They, they tell me, like, what fish should I fry for? Which field should I go? What part of the field should I scout? Because, again, if i got 50,000 acres to scout in a compressed time frame, I want to know exactly where in the field to walk to where there's a stress and uh and ag mri does that and and in the future they'll also be introducing thermal imagery which will enhance our ability to predict stress in a in a field which is pretty exciting so as an agronomist um i I want your opinion about the quality of the feedback from ag mr from the ag mri product in other words, you can make a lot of claims about, hey, we take all these photographs and we we run the photographs through our magic machine and then we'll tell you stuff. But at the end of the day, the farmer's got to got to walk out into the field. Um, how good is this is this system? How good is the analysis? Well, the system potentially has the ability to change how we do things in season. Um, my comments will be limited to corn and soybeans because as of yet we haven't flown the canola crops uh, that I want to fly in Canada yet. So primarily we're talking corn, soybeans. And uh, the response back from the farmers has been very, very good. I think the response back from the agronomists is even better than the farmers. Uh, you got to keep in mind this technology has only been available for three years and uh, my uh, my understanding is a 67% um, retention rate or, or, or a renewal rate, which is very good considering the technology is just emerging and you're dealing with all the hiccups and and uh, and and tweaks that you have to make to the system. So I would I would suggest that it's a potentially a game changer um, because it not only shrinks time and space by allowing me to know exactly where to go to ascertain what problems are there. But then it also allows me to ingest that imagery with those algorithms and ultimately design a variable rate application prescription maps that might target herbicide or target insecticide or target uh, fungicide or target uh, foliar applied nutrients or dribble band nitrogen uh, to a crop in exactly the areas where you need it. So potentially, uh, the the economic uh, the economics of this thing are are amazing. 
So we can actually lower input costs and, and while simultaneously all else being equal, seeing better yields. Right. So I started off my talk to, with you today about the issue of sustainability. And really, I mean, we all, all want agriculture to be more sustainable. And so the, um, the, the key, I mean, let, let's look at nitrogen, for example. Our, our track record globally for nitrogen utilization isn't that stellar. I mean, in Western Canada, I think in many areas where you're practicing zero tillage, we might be getting a 70% nitrogen use efficiency. Um, but in lots of areas of the world, it's uh, 30% nitrogen use efficiency with 70% of the nitrogen leaking into the environment. That's, that's not sustainable. That's not good by any stretch of the imagine. It's not good for the economics of the farm operation. It's not good for the environment. So as we face a future where we want to make sure that inputs are applied when they're needed, where they're needed, at the right time they're needed, in the right form they're needed, which is basically the four R's of nutrient stewardship, um, you think about uh, how are we going to do that and to facilitate those exact application zones and locations, a technology like uh, IntelliNair's Ag MRI is absolutely critical. And so that makes us more sustainable. Uh, the applications are more specific. They're more timely because the alerts are coming in time for the growing season. So, um, you know, one would have to look at a technology like that very quickly and determine that it's not a cost. It's actually an investment. And that investment would yield um, greater crop yields uh, combined with more specific and potentially lower inputs on a field basis. Well, it, it, it seems like we've come full circle in the conversation here. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I think that, you know, the combination uh, going into the future of, of sensor technology or imagery um, uh, of, of, of rapid in-season imagery uh, that will provide us with uh, a specific uh, ability to generate specific prescriptions you combine that with uh, autonomous uh, uh, and autonomous uh, farm implements and robotics, um, you, you have a way to, to stretch um, that agronomist or that farmer's brains. I mean, they say that 2% of Americans grow the food for the other 98%. That's not true, actually, because um, a lot of those 2% farmers that are classified as farmers are really at $10,000 of gross, uh, gross revenue or less. So the real farmers that grow 80% of the food represent about 0.25% of the American population. So 0.25% of, you know, of the of Americans or, or what I call farmers of consequence, hell, you could put most of them in, I mean, you could fit them into a, a, a big size football field and, and that's it. Those, a big, a big size football field, like the, the, the stands, the sta stadium, a big-sized football stadium yeah. in the United States, and you get the top farmers in there, and I'll guarantee you that you have uh, 70 80% of the farm produced with, with, the, with the people sitting in those seats. And again, that gets back to the whole thing I started out with, with the disconnect between how people think about agriculture and things like genetic engineering and even herbicides like Roundup. Roundup is one of the safest products on the marketplace, bar none, way safer than, than nicotine, way safer than aspirin, way safer than coffee or salt, and yet is being vilified in the media 
and it's absolutely nonsense. It's one of the best products we've ever seen. It's a one in a hundred year chemical, and uh, and people are vilifying it, wanting to rip it out of agriculture's hands, and it would be a travesty for that to happen. And it's happening in places like Europe, France, and Italy. Right. So if you stare into the future. And you, and you play out what happened in Europe, and you let, let that play out. Uh, there's, there's only one outcome, and that outcome is ultimate uh, food deprivation for a chunk of the planet. As human beings, uh, we, can, we have three choices when it comes to a, a population of, of 9 or 10 billion people. There's only three ways to deal with this issue. One is to kill people, and as species, we've had a good run of that. We can kill people. Number two is we can control birth. Uh, and, you know, who's going to sign up for birth control on a massive, massive scale? Where the third option is to feed people. You have three options. And if you stare into the future based on European Union rulings right now, uh, they're going to choose to kill people because ultimately food will become more scarce. This has been the Intellinaire podcast. Intellinaire's proprietary Ag MRI technology delivers actionable in-season insights to the health of your corn and soybeans through real-time, automated analysis of aerial imagery. I'm your host, Jack Heald. For a transcript of today's podcast, visit us at intellinaire.com slash blog.